Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. Thanks for listening, as always, or if this is your first time listening, welcome. Just a reminder, you can get all our episodes on iTunes or streaming on SoundCloud or Bloomberg.com backslash podcasts. This is episode number 35. And for this week's What's the Big Deal, we're trying to figure out why SoftBank, the Japanese wireless provider, a company we profiled with Bloomberg Managing Editor Peter Elstrom on this very podcast just a few weeks ago. That was episode 31, when SoftBank sold off Supercell, the gaming company, to Tencent, has agreed to spend $32 billion on chip designer Arm Holdings. And more than that, what it means for SoftBank's potential future, including a deal to merge Sprint and T-Mobile down the road, because just in case you don't know, SoftBank owns about 80% of Sprint. So to get the best perspective for this, I'd like to introduce Jonathan Chaplin, an equity analyst at New Street Research who covers the telecommunications industry, meaning wireless and cable broadband satellite providers. Jonathan wrote a note to clients this week about the SoftBank deal and what it means for a potential Timo Sprint deal, just the very topic I thought would be interesting to address today. Jonathan, welcome to Deal of the Week. Thanks, Alex. Uh, so to start, just tell us a little bit about New Street Research and your job for those that aren't familiar with the world of equity analysis. Sure. So New Street Research is an independent research boutique focused on the telecom and cable sectors globally. I've got a pretty decent sized team in New York and then a bunch of partners in Singapore and London. And collectively, we focus on most of the public equities in the telecom and cable space in most markets where there are publicly traded telecom companies. Okay, so you don't cover SoftBank specifically, you cover Sprint. But but from the best that you can tell, why does SoftBank want to buy Arm Holdings? So I don't cover SoftBank personally, but my colleague Kirk Boudry um, in Singapore does. And his view is basically it's a bet on the Internet of Things. Mas is a, a very forward-looking guy. He thinks that there's going to be an explosion of devices as we move into an Internet of Things world, and he thinks that this is the best the best way to play it. And the Internet of Things, this is Masa Sun, the SoftBank CEO founder, the guy that has the 300-year plan that we talked about a few weeks ago for SoftBank. Defeat sadness in the world. That's right. Exactly. Yep. Which is you know my 300 plan as well, so a 300-year plan. The Internet of Things is the idea that, you know, sort of... Everyday items are are hooked up to wireless or, or, or Wi-Fi, right? Exactly. In sort of classic massa hyperbole, um, we'll go from having one or two connected devices per individual to a thousand connected devices per individual. And as we as we go through that process of increasing the number of connected devices by orders of magnitude, all of those devices are going to need processors. And the technology that underlies that, the IP, um, hopefully from his perspective, is is controlled by ARM. And then is the idea that there's some sort of synergy with owning a wireless provider as well? In other words, you can now make money from the devices themselves and then they need to use the wireless network. So you therefore, there's something that ties in those two businesses? From Musk's perspective, absolutely. He was emphatically of the view um, that they're tremendous synergies. We may only see them in 40 years. When investors ask Well, that's on, nothing with a 300-year plan. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's yeah, just over 10%. The, yeah, when investors asked him for more detail on the specifics, his suggestion was to use the force. Um, he, uh, he quoted Yoda, as, uh, as Luke Skywalker should use the force, investors should use the force 
I'm not sure if he was suggesting that he uses the force to drive his investment decisions or whether he is the force and we should just uh, channel Massa. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that was a suggestion. So if you have a 40-year time horizon, then this sounds like a, uh, a great play to invest in, in SoftBank right now. So the, the investment in ARM might make a ten, ton of sense. I don't know the semiconductor space at all um, and you know how well positioned these guys are to dominate an in, in, internet of things space i'd say you know as we go through um sort of these shifting in chapters in technology it's not always easy to tra- translate sort of a dominant position in one ecosystem into a dominant position in, in subsequent ecosystems as guys like intel and qualcomm would tell you in in the smartphone world um they've kind of been replaced by arm um but this m- may indeed be the best bet, bet on the internet of things in matters thesis may play out perfectly with respect to ARM. I just, I'm very doubtful that there are any synergies between this and the, and, and the wireless business. So I tend to agree with that. It's hard for me to see them as well. But that said, it, you know, it sort of makes me wonder. So, so typically, that would seem to ring alarm bells. You know, a textbook M&A 101 says, if there are no synergies between your core business and the business you're buying, you should probably think very hard about whether or not you want to make this acquisition because it probably means that it's not really core to your business and you're sort of becoming a little bit of a conglomerate. That said, help me make the case about why SoftBank bought Sprint several years ago. Was Were there any synergies then? Of course, that deal really hasn't worked out, so maybe I'm making my own point here. But I believe you do think that there was some reasonable logic at the time yeah. for a Japanese wireless provider to go in and buy a U.S. wireless provider. Yeah, so if you count sort of operational experience and prowess as a synergy that you can transport from one market to another, then maybe there were synergies, but it's it's really a bit of a stretch. And we tend to think of sort of uh, synergies as real hard cost costs eliminated from putting two businesses together. And that, that really wasn't the, the story with Sprint. What Massa saw was a, a very attractive wireless market, probably the most attractive wireless market on the planet, dominated by two big, fat, and according to him, stupid incumbents. Sprint and T-Mobile. <laughs> no, the incumbents, oh, the incumbents were AT&T sorry, and sorry, Verizon. Sorry, AT&T and Verizon. Yes, 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 gotcha. So Sprint put, and T-Mobile Put were... together the weak, dumb providers to, to compete against the, the strong, dumb providers. Yeah, well, he thought, you know, he saw uh, sort of T-Mobile sitting there um, as a broken asset donating subs. Sprint, an equally broken asset, sitting on a phenomenal set of assets that had been sort of underutilized. And his thought was he would cruise in, turn around a broken Sprint, um, use the spectrum assets they had at an advantage and take a, lo- a boatload of share from AT&T and Verizon. And this is something he, you know, this is almost exactly what he had done in Japan. And when we we looked at SoftBank coming in initially, we were very, very bullish on on their prospects. We, we had sort of for a long time been, looked at Sprint as this exciting collection of assets and had been you know, for years frustrated with the lack of management that they had and thought SoftBank was exactly what they needed. And I think they, there were a couple of things they didn't see coming. So they totally didn't see the T-Mobile turnaround coming. And t- to be fair, I don't think anybody else did either. By the time they'd gotten control of the asset, T-Mobile's turnaround was in full swing and they'd basically stolen Marcel's playbook and it was very difficult for Massa to find a footing in the market with Sprint after T-Mobile had done that. And, and for those not all that familiar with the telecom world, the playbook basically, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, was T-Mobile drastically undercut AT&T and Verizon on price, and they suddenly started 
adding a whole bunch of customers, correct? They did two things. They sort of gotten this windfall of Spectrum from uh, the failed AT&T T-Mobile deal. Right, um, as part of the breakup fee for that deal. Exactly. They merged with Metro PCS and got their hand on a great uh, set of managers. They bought in Legere from the outside at the same time. John Ledger, Legere. If you don't know who that is, Google him. You'll be amused. Yeah. They uh, put a little bit of money into the network and all of the sort of collectively at about the same time dramatically slashed prices while advertising that they had the best network in, in America. And it took a, about a quarter and a half to catch on. And pretty soon they were growing subscribers at a torrid pace and, and really haven't looked back. And that's kind of exactly what Masa's playbook had been in Japan. And it was just difficult. You know, the, the, his, I think his intention was to come in as the value provider, dramatically undercut Verizon and AT&T with a great network. And T-Mobile sort of got there about a year before he was able to. All right. So let's get to the heart of why I really wanted you on the show this week. How does the SoftBank arm deal impact a future potential Timo Sprint merger. So basically what it does is reduces Massa's resources to go after T-Mobile. We're very bearish on Sprint's prospects as sort of an independent operating business. We don't think the business is viable. It's gotten to a point where it's stabilized, um, but it's not growing at a pace nearly fast enough um, for there to be any equity value at Sprint as a standalone business. The only prospect we see of this being a, a compelling equity is if they can get a deal with T-Mobile done. The synergies from that, from putting those two assets together, would be tremendous. We, you know, we're talking at least sort of twenty to thirty billion dollars worth of synergies from el- eliminated infrastructure costs. What's you know beyond that, uh, super exciting is you've got this asset with a tremendous amount of momentum at T-Mobile that sooner or later is going to need a lot more spectrum to fuel this growth. And Sprint sitting on a treasure trove of spectrum. Um, so, that, you know, there, there really is a lot of industrial logic from putting the two companies together. The issue is that Sprint isn't the only interested party. We think Comcast is going to get into the market pretty soon with a wireless offering um, and will ultimately be interested in T-Mobile. Um, Dish has made a run at T-Mobile. Altice could be interested in T-Mobile. Iliad has made a run at T-Mobile. Most of the competing offers won't be all that compelling to T-Mobile relative to the Sprint offer, but the Comcast offer would be. I think Sprint's biggest advantage in going after T-Mobile is sort of moving fast and moving aggressively. And the more cash they can put into the offer, uh, the better position they are. But isn't the biggest hurdle to moving fast and aggressively on T-Mobile the regulatory pressures? I mean, basically, Sprint tried to merge with T-Mobile a couple of years ago, and the FCC and maybe the DOJ told Massa, don't do this. It's not going to pass. So the that's absolutely right. And their sort of mantra at the time was no four to three. I think two things will have changed by the time they attempted the deal. So one of them will be that Comcast will have entered the market. And, you know, I think it has to be clear that they're entering the market to stay, that this is a, a real push into wireless. It's not one of the sort of half-hearted attempts that they've made in the past. Just just to clarify, how will they do that without owning a network? It's some sort of Wi-Fi technology? So they've got about 14 million Wi-Fi hotspots connected to a fantastic wireline network today. And that sort of includes their cable partners, Wi-Fi facilities as well. And then they've got an MVNO with Verizon. They also have one with Sprint for that matter. MVNO meaning you sort of are able to share the, the wireless network of Verizon. Exactly. Yep. 
So they'll be using their Wi-Fi infrastructure wherever it's available and Verizon's network to fill in the gaps. And that's a great way to sort of enter the market. Ultimately, they'll want owner's economics. There are a couple of ways they can get there. But the most logical one is probably ultimately to buy to buy an existing wireless carrier. And I think as they look at the sort of the, the difficulties that Sprint faces, they'd be very attracted to T-Mobile. So just to sum up, you feel like Comcast's entrance into the market will then make the market no longer a four to three scenario, and that will change regulators' calculus on. There's another element that changes the calculus, which is when they attempted the deal the last time. Sprint and T-Mobile stocks were at their all-time high. Both companies were promising a massive ramp in EBITDA. Um, they both just raised capital from the outside markets, from from, from the from the public debt and equity markets. They, from you know their own description of their business, were anything but um, struggling businesses that needed to consolidate to survive. Fast forward two years, and I think the picture is very different. T-Mobile's obviously flourishing, but Sprint is a basket case. And I think you know to the extent that our analysis on Sprint is at all compelling to the regulators. It's not a viable business. It's not like Chapter 11 restructuring would solve their problems. Um, their costs, their fixed costs are too high. They don't have enough revenue to cover those costs, even if you wiped out all the interest expense. And they're not growing at a pace that's going to get them to enough revenue anytime soon. In other words, does that mean that if they don't merge with T-Mobile, they probably go bankrupt? They cease to exist? Sooner or later... It's relatively inevitable unless they find a way to sort of dramatically reinvent themselves. Let's take the Sprint Timo uh, deal aside. Let's say it doesn't happen. Should Sprint shareholders be worried about this SoftBank arm deal? Because SoftBank has a whopping $112 billion of debt on its balance sheet at the end of March. That number likely goes up with this deal. Does that deal negatively affect Sprint at all? It only negatively affects Sprint in that after selling off a bunch of assets, it looked like SoftBank had a a sort of a decent war chest of cash. When Aurora left SoftBank and Master said he was staying on in part to see the turnaround of Sprint through, you know, that fact coupled with this with a significant cash position you know, looked like they were in a, in a real position to do something dramatic in the U.S. And now it turns out that they had other plans for that cash. It's, you know, for the, well, we've been thinking about what Massa could be thinking about Sprint as he decided to stay on as CEO. It seems like he had other things on his mind, in fact. For the last, you know, month or so, at least, Sprint hasn't been the priority. And so, you know, it doesn't directly impact Sprint's operations or their sort of strategic options. It just limits the resources that Masa has to commit to Sprint to help them secure what they need. And by the way, this narrative theoretically could change because one of the things I know from speaking to advisors involved in the SoftBank arm deal was that there is a legitimate question still about whether or not another bidder will emerge for arm. So it is possible that Apple or someone else may come out of the woodwork and make a bid for arm uh, and challenge SoftBank. So it's not quite a done deal yet that SoftBank walks away with arms. So the calculus could, in fact, change again if that were to happen. That's totally fair. I think Musk has put himself in a very strong position by putting a knockout bid on the table up front, making it pretty challenging for for somebody else to come in over the top. Um, but it's certainly a possibility. Last question here, because I know you cover Verizon as well, and this will uh, probably preview, I would say, our next week's show, if not certainly the week after that, Verizon, the front runner, probably still to buy Yahoo, is something that we've talked about on this show before. Very quickly, before we wrap, 
Does that deal make any sense to you, Verizon buying Yahoo? It does make sense to me. I've done my best to understand it, and I've I failed. It might be because I'm just not a millennial, and I don't understand how fantastic these assets really are. But it's it's I, because I, millennials think that Yahoo is fantastic. Well, it seems like the that Verizon is building and the, AOL <laughs> exactly. Verizon's building the the sort of the collection of assets for the future um, because of millennials. That's the that's the sort of rough rationale they wrap around this collection of Go ninety AOL Yahoo. I mean, isn't that ironic though? Which is like you'd buy Yahoo and AOL to appeal to millennials. Like that would have made sense, you know, millennials of twenty years ago. There's some great comedy in this that that will come out at some point. But yeah, that's exactly. I mean, the idea of sort of these old white men in New Jersey building the business that's going to appeal to millennials by buying the companies that were dominant in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s. There's, there's genuine comedy wrapped up in all of that. Uh, but, you know, w- when I look at what, what Verizon has been, been phenomenal at, they've built, hands down, the most valuable wireless business on the planet. They've got returns on invested capital in the mid-teens, EBITDA margins in, in the mid-50s, a dominant position in the most attractive market there is in wireless. They've done it by sort of out-executing everybody else in, in a relatively competitive industry. When you look at that business, it's got you know, phenomenal ca- cash flow profile, very high barriers to entry, structural advantages all over the place. And then compare it to Yahoo, which operates in an incredibly fragmented market with very low barriers to entry, with no clear asset advantage no inherent skill or sort of experience at Verizon to extract value from the asset. It's, you know, I've really struggled to kind of understand what they see there. Uh, you and me both on that one, Jonathan. So we'll have to see how that one works out. And in fact, if Verizon walks away with Yahoo, and we may know that as soon as next week's podcast. Jonathan Chaplin, equity analyst at New Street Research. Thanks for joining us. Of course. Thanks, Alex. So that's it for this week's episode. You can expect more Bloomberg reporters and M&A professionals who are doing deals real time. And until then, find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and on Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Google Play, or any app you use to listen to podcasts. And if you have a minute, please rate and review the show while you're there. We'd love to hear from you. Also, follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. See you next week.